0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Doc Sloan. I've never had a bad day in my life. That's a saying I came up with that I didn't really came up come up with. I pirated it from a guy named Eddie Brasi, who was a manager for me in my Ramshorn restaurant in Wayne, Michigan. I was sitting at the counter drinking coffee. And a gentleman walked in, Eddie was my manager, and they looked at each other and they said, well, actually, the, the fellow was paying his bill, and Eddie was taking his cash. And uh, they looked at each other and they said, you know, I know you from someplace. Where do I know you from? And Eddie said, yeah, you look really familiar to me too. And they kept looking at each other for about 20 seconds. And finally, they mentioned a couple of restaurants. And then finally, uh, Eddie said, I know where I know you from. Carl's in Plymouth, and they both said in unison, I never had a bad day in my life. I loved it. I was sitting there just mesmerized and thinking about what that meant. I was 30 years old. It was 1978. And uh, it just resonated with me. I never had a bad day in my life. And I, I said, who, who said that? And they said, Carl Taylor. He used to own Carl's in Plymouth. It was a, on Stark weather and Plymouth Road. And he had a very successful restaurant. he was a southern gentleman and he'd had five heart attacks in his life, some open heart surgeries, a lot of health problems and they would tell they told me about him right then and they said every time you'd see Carl, they'd say, "Hey, Carl, how you doing? Never had a bad day. never had a bad day in my life And I just absolutely loved it and from that day till this I've said that when people always say to you, "Well, how are you, Doc?" And by the way, my name is Doc Sloan if I didn't say that already." And I'm in the studio here in that hotbed of podcast excellence in Northville, Michigan. And um, I have my daughter, Stacy, with me, who came up with the idea for this podcast. In the control room is Jeremy, and sitting by, beside me is my wife, Sharon. Now, Sharon and I have been married for 52 years. Well, this year it'll be 52 years. And I, I tell everybody that I married her for better or for worse. I couldn't have done better, and she couldn't have done worse. So, and you know, the thing that's funny about it is nobody ever argues with anybody who knows us when I tell them that, they never argue with me about that fact. So, uh, I would like to have Stacey, um introduce herself and then tell us or tell you how she came up with the idea for this podcast and why.
1: Okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Stacey Sloan, and I'm really excited about this podcast. The reason that I wanted my dad to do this is. Uh, Pretty simple. My dad has always been really inspirational, very positive to other people. And when people find out who my parents are, the one thing that they say to me is, oh, my gosh, your parents are the best. They're always so happy. They're always in such a good mood. They've always made a habit of other people um, making them feel really good. And, and that has been true. And that's been like a legacy that I didn't even realize that I had until probably a few years ago. And my dad started sending out these texts to us as a family um, every week on a Sunday, and they were called the 52 Reasons. And at some point, he'll probably tell the story in this podcast about how that came to be. And I started looking forward to these texts every week. And the thing about the texts were that it was – completely geared towards being positive and inspirational and starting the week off in a way that would make everybody feel excited about what was to come and sort of changing perspective and mindset about um, who we are and and what we're supposed to be doing and the way that we should be going through life. And I, I first wanted to give my dad because it's hard to buy a gift for him at all it's it's almost impossible to buy him birthday gift or Christmas gift. So I wanted to save these texts and screenshot them and then turn them into a book that we would have uh, to read in the future. I thought that would mean a lot to him. And then I realized that that was way beyond my depth. I was calling my niece and saying, Hey, did you, I can't find number 48. Can you send me number 48? And it was kind of a mess. And I decided, you know what, it would be even better just to have a podcast. So as a family – in the future or even now, we can just sit down and and listen to my dad talk about his life and maybe my mom if she wants to talk about her perspective too. And then I realized, well, that's really more than just about our family because everybody loves to talk to my parents. Everybody loves to talk to my dad and uh, to hear all of his stories. And he's got such great stories. So Being fortunate enough to be in contact with Jamie Flanagan and Brian Donovan through Animal Talk Radio and Podcast Detroit, I thought this is this is going to be the thing. So I'm not going to do the book. I abandoned the book and I decided I'm going to buy him some sessions for a podcast and then we'll have this and hopefully he'll like it. And the first time that I told him about it, I said, well, the podcast is about an hour. And he said, well, geez, do you think I could really talk for an hour? <laughs> and I said, I absolutely believe that you can talk to anybody for an hour or more. And the podcast is really about a mindset. My dad has been a very successful entrepreneur, basically a self-made person. And a lot of that has been um, a blessing on his life, but really a lot of positive attitude and mindset. And it's It's technically not true that he's never had a bad day. There have been I've had some tough nights, but no bad days. (laughs) Tough nights. But it's really that mindset. If you were to look at his life, what is the theme? And the theme has been that there has been this deliberate choice and intention to never have a bad day. And. We're excited about bringing guests onto the show, other entrepreneurs or other people who have been successful in different ways in their lives or in business and talking to them about what have you done when things were hard? What have you done when technically you could have had a really bad day and how did you overcome it and how do you find the way to persevere? And there are so many more of those people than we probably realize and I think it's inspirational to have access to those kind of stories.
0: Thanks, Daisy. You know, I was watching just a—I've never seen the the film, and it's in total entirety ever. Uh, but it's uh, uh, the bucket list with um, Jack uh, Nicholson and uh, the black gentleman. Uh, I can't remember the actor's name. Help me well, out. Oh, maybe. was it Will Smith? No, no. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, see, that shows you how much I'm plugged into that. But I was watching, I was watching the show. I got the the, the idea of the show real quickly. And these guys go on this bucket list. Uh, they've got three months to live, or something like that. One's a billionaire, and the other fellow's just an average. I think he's a postman or something. And uh, they they go on this trip and uh, in a private jet they see the world and they 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 have this list of all the things they want to do before they die in three months. Well, one guy doesn't make it for three months or the, after three months, but Jack Nicholson lives to be eighty one. So if you haven't seen the movie, I ruined it for you, but it's like twenty years old. So anyway, uh, but in the bucket list, uh, Jack Nicholson screams at Morgan Freeman and he says, "I'm not everyone." And uh, later on at his uh, funeral, uh, Jack Nicholson said, "You know." or James uh, Morgan Friedman, rather, before his funeral, says in a narrative, you know, one time he he read this letter to him. and He said, one time you said, I'm not everyone, but everyone's everyone. And he said, so if you can talk to one person at a time, you're talking to everyone because everyone's everyone. And uh, thank you for that, Stacey. It reminds me of my background of uh, being a child and growing up in a salesman's family. Now, my dad was a car salesman. He was a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I like what Lou Holtz had to say one time, and if you're not familiar with who Lou Holtz is, you should look him up and find out all you can about Lou Holtz because he's a great motivator, a great coach, great American. And uh, he used to be uh, the, one, of the, one of the coaching jobs he had was from uh, was at Notre Dame when it was the pinnacle of his career. But before that he was a college of William and Mary, uh, the second oldest college in America. It's in Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, he lost his job, as many coaches do, and he got fired. His wife was a nurse, and uh, she was a trained nurse, and they had three kids or maybe four. I'm not sure. They were all little. Lou had lost his job, and she had a job, a daytime job, being a nurse. And uh, so he would stay home and watch the kids. And so one day he, uh, she pulled a night shift, I think is the way the story went, and he hadn't... Uh, been, I mentioned my dad was a salesman. And this is why it led me to think about Lou Holtz. And he said, uh, so I got a job selling cemetery plots. He was here he was a football coach. He said, I got a job selling cemetery plots. And he said, that summer, he said, um, I didn't sell one cemetery plot. He said, my wife was working every day, and I didn't sell one cemetery plot. And he thought, um, well, it's not because I can't sell. Because that summer, said, I sold our TV, <laughs> I sold our car, <laughs> I sold our couch. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea, but he, he wasn't doing very well selling. And his wife gave him a book about goals. And, um, so he read the book. She went to work one, one day and she, he, he read the book and he got so excited when he read the book that he, uh, got out a yellow legal pad and he wrote down a list of goals. He came up with 119 goals. And I still remember some of them that he, I, he didn't list the whole sheet of goals with us in the book, the story I was reading, but he 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 listed a number of goals, some of which I put on my own bucket list or goal list, if you will. I'll get to those some other time. But he said, um, she got home, and he was so excited, and he said, look, honey, I read your book. I read the book you gave me. I love it. And he said, it really motivated me to to do really well, and, and look at the, look at the goals I've got down for my life. He wanted to be in the Johnny Carson show. He wanted to uh, land on an aircraft carrier. He wanted to have dinner at the White House. He wanted to have a hole in one. He wanted to have list. He wanted to coach a Big Ten national championship football team. And he had all these goals, and he had 119 of them. and he, and he was really excited about them. And his wife looked at the list and she said, "Well, I've got one." He's, "I got 119 goals here," and she said, "Well, I've got one more for you." He said, what's that? She said, get a job. So, <laughs> so goals are important, but so is work. <laughs> but I grew up in a family um, of average people. Uh, and uh, But in a way, I say average people, but no, they really weren't average. They were above average uh, because of what they taught me. The work ethic that I got from my mother and my father, who was an invalid later on in my life. But when he was younger, he worked very, very difficult jobs. He was born in 1899 in Manchester, England. And imagine this: in 1899, this is 2020. I'm, is that right? 2020, yeah, 2020. So 121 years ago, my father was born. And then in England, and they were they were like what Bob Hope said. You know, Bob Hope was from from uh, England, and one time someone said to Bob Hope, well, you're British, right, Bob? And Bob said, oh, no. He says, we were never rich enough to be British. We were just English. <laughs> so my parents were that same way. My father was English. He wasn't British. Grew up in a coal mining family, and uh, he, so they went to f- eighth grade at 13 years of age. My father went out of a, a school and went to the coal mines with his brothers. So he was 13 or 14 years old. I can't even imagine uh, going into a coal mine. At 18 I and mean at 13 years of age. And he was there for seven years. And then one of their sisters moved to America and they all followed suit, which many European families did back in those days. And they all came over to America and my dad became a salesman. He had a number of jobs, but he finally landed in sales. And it really changed our family's direction, I'm sure, even though I was too young to realize it, that the decisions that my dad made and the things he learned. Were were passed on to me. Now, my mother was from an entirely different background. She was from Ohio, a farm family. Uh, They did well. They they owned farms and they had a normal life even through the depression. My I asked my mother about the depression one time. She was born in 1921, and she lived to be the age of 97. And uh, I asked her about the depression one time, and she says, "You know, really, we we didn't experience the depression on the farm." She says, I was a young girl. She says, I was only eight years old when it started. I was 12 when it ended, and um, we always had food, and we there was we had cows for milk, and we had food on the table, and we grew our crops, and my mom and dad had a, a garden. And uh, they, they never lost their farms. It wasn't like out west where there was a dust bowl and things like that. So they had a, a, a tremendous uh, ability to understand and appreciate hard work but at the same time realized that they were fortunate enough not to know hunger. I don't know that my father knew hunger either, but I I think he might have uh, in England as being a coal miner. But the two of them got married, and they brought together this really great ingredient of uh, hard work and imagination, I would say. My dad had a vivid imagination, a great sense of humor. My mom was a warrior. My dad was very carefree. Um, it's typical of marriages where opposites attract. And uh, I, I really do think I got the best of both worlds. I really do. When I look back, I got my saving nature, my hard work nature. Well, my dad was a hard worker. But by the time I got of age to understand all that, he was um, sick. He, was, he had emphysema. He was, uh, he was a coal miner, as I mentioned. And then he smoked Chesterfields. And uh, no filters, two or three packs a day. And eventually it caught up to him. And by the time I was uh, born and two years of age, he got pneumonia and then the emphysema set in. And then for the rest of my life, and I wasn't even aware of that at two years of age, uh, my dad was started to get progressively sick every year, sicker and sicker and, and just uh, weaker and weaker every year. So when I say he was an invalid, he wasn't like um, in a wheelchair, but uh, he had oxygen by his bedside, things like that. But we had this, but he, even when he didn't work, couldn't work, really. Is a better way to put it. Uh, he would always in, instill and invest in myself and my brother. Not so much my sister. I don't think she'd have to say that for herself. But the values of selling he shared with me and my brother, and we both had paper routes. So when we were growing up, we this whole new world of being able to make money when you're 11 years old, other than shoveling someone's walk um, in the wintertime or cutting their grass in the summertime. Uh, to have a regular steady job like a paper route, it, it, it was very appealing to myself and my older brother. And uh, so we both got paper routes, Detroit newspaper outs. And I had to wait a little about a year after my brother because uh, you could only have a route when you were 12. And I was 11 years old. and Actually, they gave me a route because they, of my brother. And uh, you had to buy a route back in those days. But anyway, I bought a route. It how was, much did the route cost? It cost me $10. And it was at Flamingo Trailer Park. It's still there today at 9 Mile Middle Belt Road. My brother had the subdivision across the street. And uh, I paid $10 for the route, and I was extremely excited about it. But then we really learned how to um, make our own money in some ways. We, we already knew how to work, but uh, it, was a, it was kind of a steady uh, day-to-day, day in, day out. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. And um, so they had these contests. And you could win candy bars. It was the lowest contest. Or you could win maybe a bow and arrow or a flashlight or a camera or a sleeping bag. A or bow and arrow. A yeah, bow and arrow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: That's awesome. You yeah. could never do that in 2020. <laughs> isn't,
0: that's, yeah, that's really true.
1: I'm wondering that's, if people know what a paper route is.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That's a good point. So uh, that's funny. So uh, we we were just and they have it all hanging up on the. And the manager's name was Mister Eager, and uh, he he was uh, he he had all these these prizes hanging up on this wall in his office, and the office was in the basement of his home in Farmington Hills, around Metal Belt and Grand River area. And the, uh, my brother and I would go in and look at that wall and say, and it was a trip to Washington, D.C., which we never won. We never won the trip to Washington, D.C., but we won everything on that board. I'm pretty sure we won everything on that board one time or another, the bow and arrow, the camera, the sleeping bag, uh, the flashlights uh, the and what they do is when you got a new customer they give you a, a number and you pull the number and they had a little punch card it was like a lottery almost and you pull up the you, you you pull up the punch on the top of the card you peel it off it's like a scratch and win today but it was way before that and um if they added the, the number you picked it gave you the number of the prize and so if you picked 21 and a bow and arrow was 21, you got 21. But if it was three and, and it was a Babe Ruth candy bar, you got the Babe Ruth candy bar, that type of thing. But we were always winning. So my brother and I would go into my dad's bedroom. He would be laying there in his pajamas because, again, he had this emphysema with oxygen behind beside the bed. And uh, he would train us. We were 11, 12 years old. And we would tra- he would train us. We would walk up to his bedroom. The door was open. And we'd have to knock on the door. And he'd say hello, come in, and we'd walk in, and he'd say, "What do you want?" And we'd say, uh, "Well, speak up." And he'd give us training of sales training, and we'd say, "Well, I'm so and so, and I'm from the Detroit News, and I'm I'm selling uh, papers for the Detroit News on my route." And well, I don't want the news; I like the free press. It's a morning paper, and they beat uh, you know. And they give us these objections. <laughs> and So, <laughs> one time. He really ripped into me. I'll never forget this. This is a true story. I, I, my dad just ripped into me about some objections he gave me, and I, I was just like, I was uh, paralyzed really, and I, I remember looking at him, and because uh, he, he was yelling at me, and um, <laughs> not screaming, but yelling at me, and I, I didn't, I didn't understand what he was doing. I really didn't understand what he was doing. He was training me for life, but I didn't under, I didn't get it, and. Uh, then he looked at me and smiled. he had blue eyes, and they were always full of water. Uh, it was always like he was always ready to cry all the time because he was so sick and um he had these light blue eyes, and he looked at me and winked. he says, "You know, son, what I'm doing here is teaching you how to take care of a handle an objection with a with a bad customer with a mean customer he says so he said what you do you know what you do when you get a customer like that, don't you?" I said, "No, Dad, what do you do?" He says, "You look him in the eye and you say, "Well, how many paper boys have you had for breakfast today?" <laughs> So, <laughs> so that's the only seminar I remember vividly about my dad and my paper out. That's what he said. And I knew I could never say that. <laughs> but, and frankly, I never and I'm glad I never really ran into anybody like that, but other than my dad training me for for life. Uh, but I started to say about my background, I was listening to Bill Cosby one time talking before he fell from grace on a TV show. And uh, he was talking and I used to always say uh, when I tell my life story in a, in a capsule, you know, like in, in like an elevator pitch, I'd say, well, we grew-, we grew up poor. And my dad was an invalid. And my mom worked three jobs and blah, blah, blah. Feel sorry for me. I didn't really want people to feel sorry for me. But I would I'd tell the I pic- pitch it that way. We grew up poor. And then one day I was watching Bill Cosby on TV and he said to whoever he was talking to, you know, we weren't poor, but we were broke. And I thought, man, that describes my childhood. <laughs> I really realized that that's, my, 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 my story about myself, about my life, was inaccurate because I was listening to other people's story about me and how they described themselves. And I started to kind of glom on to their narrative for their lives. And I really realized that, no, we weren't poor. We were broke. And in many ways, we were rich because we had love in our family. There's only three things that children need, love. Discipline and direction, and I had that in spades in my house. We had a lot of love, a lot of discipline, a lot of direction and poor people don 't have anything they don 't have anywhere to live. they worry about the rent payment well i 'm sure my mom and dad worry about that, but uh, they don 't have heat they don 't have food they don 't have a car they don 't have gas for their car if they have a car and uh, that 's the kind of life I grew up in and I really realized i was I grew up in a in a very rich family, but we were poor we weren 't poor, but we were broke. <laughs>
1: So how did it happen um, that you sort of discovered this idea of um, motivation and inspiration? Was that interesting to you because your dad was always really into that? Is that something that you developed after you sort of became self-employed? What was your first sort of foray into entrepreneurship?
0: My first foray was cutting lawns and and shoveling walks. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't really count from the standpoint of adult life. But I, we, we, had a, we had a great need in our family. Uh, once I got to be about, well, 10 or 11 years old, 11 years old when I got a route, we started to buy our own, have to buy our own clothes. Now, my mother would buy us Wrangler jeans for school, and uh, we wanted Levi's. Wrangler jeans cost $2 a pair. Levi's cost $4.50 a pair, and my mom couldn't afford to buy us uh, Levi jeans. And so what we would say is, well, if we give you the extra money, can we have Levi's? And she said, well, that's fine. And so we started buying our own clothes and realizing what was important to us and, and of course, having a paper out and having our own money. Even though it wasn't a lot, it was like $10 a week, Uh, but it was more than the $10 a week I had before I had my paper out. So that's kind of where it started to realize I could make money. Um, but the to answer your question specifically or more poignantly would be um, that because of the training I had as a as a child and because of the people that were in my life in my family, don't forget, Stacy and the audience here. Excuse me my my mother was from an entrepreneurial family. They they had farms, so they had a different life than we did. Um, they, they didn't, they were not showy. All their money was in their land, but they were, they were pretty, probably pretty wealthy when I look back on it. And, uh, I had an uncle Lawrence McClung that owned a company called quality screw products. And he started with nothing himself during the depression. He actually literally worked three jobs. He worked for Nash motors. He worked for Calvinator. And then when he came home at night, he had a little lathe in his, uh, garage as I was too young. I wasn't even born then, but as the story goes, and I'm sure it's accurate, uh, he would, he would turn out some parts in his lathe during the war and he would make some parts, uh, for, for somebody during the war, World War Two, And, um, so I had these entrepreneurs around me, not in spades, but an introduction to that kind of a world. And, um, uh, I, I, when you, to answer your question, Stacy, it reminds me of Brian Tracy. Now, Brian Tracy is a great motivational speaker and a, and a really good thinker, a good author, a good lecturer and, um, he wrote a book called Change Your Thinking, Change Your Life. He also did a, a tape series called Getting Rich in America. That was my first introduction to Brian Tracy. And if for any of you out there that have not heard of Brian Tracy or have had heard of Brian Tracy, I highly recommend you you get and and read and and be introduced to Brian Tracy. Uh, it'll help you a lot. It helped me. And in one of his tape series, Getting Rich in America, to answer your question, Stacy, because I did want to be uh, – well, I did want to be rich. I mean, we were we were broke. We weren't poor. But but I realized that uh, that money was important. It's not the most important thing in life. But like Zig Ziglar says, it's reasonably close to oxygen. So, you know, you have to have it. And um, so I listened to Brian Tracy one time. He said, you know, there's four reasons. I mean, I'm sorry. He said, there's five reasons why people never achieve financial success. He said, number one, it never occurs to them. He said they never had an aunt or an uncle, which I did, a mom or a dad, a, a teacher, a neighbor, somebody that became financially independent. So it, it never occurs to them that they could do that. Then the number two reason, let's say it occurs to them, according to Brian Tracy, is that uh, they never decide to. This is very important, uh, this part here, because you can it can occur to you to be financially independent, to take charge of your life in every, all areas of your life. But if you never make that decision to do that, nothing ever happens. Then the third reason that Brian Tracy said is the number 3 reason. Three three reason is because then they procrastinate. They'll put off till tomorrow what they should be doing today. They'll I'll do it when we when when the, the Republicans get out of office. I'll do it when we get a new mayor. I'll do it when I graduate from high school. I'll do it when I get a new job. I'll get it when I get a new boss. I'll get it when I I'll do it when I get a new when I get married. I'll get it when I get divorced. And they have all these reasons to procrastinate. And they keep putting it off. And I know what Zig Ziglar said about that, too. You'll hear me quote him a lot. He said, yeah, he said, you know, he says, "Uh, the greatest labor-saving device ever invented was tomorrow. And uh, that's where a lot of people are. So that's number three. So number one, it it doesn't occur to them. Number three, two, it doesn't, uh, they don't decide to. Number three, they procrastinate. Number four, now we're going to get into the real meat of it. And that is they don't understand the, understand the concept of long-range time. Pers- I'm sorry, of um, delayed gratification. In other words, I'll eat hot dogs today so I can have steak tomorrow. And a lot of people, because we live in such an instant gratification society today, I believe with all my heart, mind, and soul that what I see today with credit cards, not that they're bad, but they can be devastating, but they want instant gratification. And same with the job. They want to go right to the top and... Um, we'll talk again how I started out with very humble beginnings of my first business that I started with $20, Uh, but we won't get into that today. And um, so they don't understand the concept of delayed gratification. I I learned that lesson (laughs) over and over again in my life that I always had to be putting off for today for tomorrow. And many times um, it was devastating to me emotionally and mentally as a child but it really motivated me later on as an adult. And then the fifth reason, and the most important reason, I want everybody to pay attention. If you have a pen and pencil, write this down. Life has a law. There's a formula called L-A equals E-C. I will defy and bet anybody in this, in this podcast audience. that if I, I can't give out their cell phone numbers, but I would do this if you knew me. I've told people this before. I will bet you. A dollar bill in your wallet to a hundred dollar bill in my my money clip hundred to one odds that you can call any one of my children john stacy or Lori, and ask them your dad says there's the formula called la equals ec what does that mean i said if they can't give you the answer i'll give you a hundred dollars that's the bet i'll make i'll give you a hundred dollars now i had a guy named christian coon who was a salesman for me one time and i told him this story and the next day, because he, he did have access to my kids' phone numbers, and the next day he came in and laid $2 on my desk. Mm-hmm. He said, I called two of your kids, and they both knew. He said, I figured it was worth $100. <laughs> and he said, I called two of your kids, and both of them knew the answer to your, your formula. It's not my formula. It's Brian Tracy's formula. And Brian Tracy said this, fifth reason why most people do not ever achieve financial independence in life, and that is that life has a law. It's called the law of accumulation. That's the L.A. part of the formula. L.A. Life has a law of accumulation. And he said, and the law of accumulation states and tells us and demands that everything counts. That's the E.C. L.A. equals E.C. The law of accumulation says everything counts. Again, with Brian Tracy saying this in his uh, tape series, Getting Rich in America, now, he said, most people live their life like all the good stuff counts, but not the bad stuff, the negative stuff. I cheated on a test. I was dishonest. I got up late today. I didn't, I didn't go to work on time. But uh, I ran a mile. I drank some orange juice instead of a, a milkshake. We have a way of compromising our, our ideas and our, and our excuses for why we are successful. He said, but life is just writing down a ledger all the time. And on, let's say on the right-hand side, you have this ledger of all these good things you've done. And then on the left-hand side, you have a ledger of all these negative things you might have done or habits you might have. And they are either dragging you down or building you up. So which side of your column are you filling up? And Brian Tracy said this. He said, you'll look at successful people. It's not that they don't make, success, make mistakes. They make a lot of mistakes, some fewer than others. But he said – they make more right choices than wrong choices. They make more positive decisions than negative decisions. They do more things right than they do wrong. And the ledger speaks for itself. So the law of accumulation states everything counts. And that's really what caused me, when I started to come into the concept with these truths and these ideas, it, it made me thirsty and hungry like a sponge, really, for more all the time. And I first came in contact with these principles, Stacy. Uh, when I was about 21 years of age.
1: Okay, so that was after you started your first business.
0: Yes, I first started my okay. first business when I was 19 years of age. When I was in college, I wanted to be an airline pilot. I was always interested in flying, and I love flying. I've owned five airplanes. And um, I, um, I I read about what airline pilots made. It was back in those days. It doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but in the uh, 60s, but 1965, an average captain for one of the airlines would make about $40,000 a year. That was huge money back in those days mm-hmm. for someone to make that. And they only flew 20 hours a week. And that, that like intrigued me. How can you work half of a week and only and get paid 6, 8, 10, 12 times more than the average American makes? So it kind of interested me to go toward an airline career. And um, so it started me taking my flying lessons while I was going to college. And uh, then I didn't have enough money to take my flying lessons because I was working at a Kmart making a $1.60 an hour. So then I uh, realized I could start a little window cleaning company and make more money. So that's what I did while I was going to college. I started making, uh, taking flying lessons and paying for them by washing windows instead of working for Kmart at $1.60 an hour. So I increased my income at least fivefold. I made about p- probably $20 an hour. Uh, no, it would be tenfold, wouldn't it? anywhere between fifteen ten to ten to twenty dollars an hour as as a you know, as a nineteen year old as opposed to any job that was available out there in those days which was about a buck sixty an hour
1: right well even today that would be you know it's not nothing
0: exactly you so mean twenty dollars an hour yeah oh yeah, of course yeah, yeah yeah i mean right right Absolutely. so back then in what was yeah.
1: that nineteen sixty seven
0: nineteen sixty seven right mm-hmm. yeah so and quite uh, a bit of
1: money. It was in 1967 dollars. Yeah, An you know, it was unheard uh, it, of.
0: It, it really was, but I and that really it stoked my imagination. It stoked my uh, my excitement about being able to do something with my life more than just telling having someone else to tell me what I'm worth. That's one of the things that I really learned about owning my own business. I call it owning own your own monopoly set, and my kids have heard me say that a lot. Uh, own your own monopoly set, and, and then own your own dumpster. Now we'll we'll get into that some other time. But you you know, you, in order to be successful, you got you have to own your own truck. You have to own your own dumpster. But I'll tell you about that some other time. I'm, and by the way, I'm not in the trash removal business. But
1: <laughs> so you, how did you come across these principles? Like what you said, it was uh, you were 21. You'd already started your business. What was the occasion that you encountered? These ideas.
0: Well, th- this is a really interesting story. I'm glad you brought that up because I wouldn't have thought of this to put this into to this format today. Um, I graduated from Eastern Michigan University in 1971, and uh, I graduated in January. Uh, and I, uh, my wife, and we were mar- Sharon and I were married by that time, and um, we had a party. At my aunt I mentioned my uncle Lawrence McClung had the tool and dye business and he had a very nice home in Farmington Hills with a big basement finished and just way beyond anything we'd ever experienced as kids we didn't even have a basement our our house had a crawl space you know so but my uncle had a this really an aunt they had this beautiful home, and uh There's it's still there today there. pardon me. Yeah, well it was yeah, Sharon was saying my wife's right here next to me and she said it was inspiring. It was it and it gets back to what Brian Tracy said, number 1. It never occurs to them. They never had an aunt or an uncle someone to motivate them to realize that they could do that too. So, had a had a uh, a party, a graduation party, and a number of our friends and family were there and my cheapest friend. Everybody has a cheap friend. <laughs> I'm not going to mention his name because he's still alive and uh, alive and well <laughs> <laughs> in, the Detroit, in the Detroit area. But my tre- cheapest friend, uh, you know, you're getting a twenty dollar bill on a card, and that's what you're liking and, uh, and that type of thing. And maybe my grandfather or somebody gave me a hundred dollar bill. I, I'm sure that happened, but I really don't remember. It, it's funny. I don't. Rem- I only remember two gifts from that whole party. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Two gifts. One was from a missionary friend of ours named uh, Carolyn and Roy McCook that we still support today, and they were in Colombia, South America, for forty years, and also Mexico City and a number of places um, uh, in Spanish-speaking countries. And um, they, Carolyn, they had no money. They were they were missionary interns, they, and they had four children, and they had no money. And she, and Carolyn made me a gigantic tie. I mean, <laughs> like like a clown, like a clown would wear. It was probably. 10 inches wide at the base <laughs> and maybe 2 inches wide at the neck and I did put it on one time just for a joke but of course I never wore it anywhere but she just she just made a fun tie for me it was made out of paisley yellow paisley with blue it was very ugly but it was very funny <laughs> and uh, do you remember that tie Sharon? Oh I do Yeah and then the you know, other no, I think we finally threw it out, but we kept it for a number of years And as we moved from house to house. But then the other gift I gave, which gets to your point, Stacy, was what, what motivated me. My cheapest friend gave me, I opened a card up, and uh, inside the card was the notification that you've just been gifted a year's subscription to Success Unlimited magazine. The supply the – susri- I'm sorry. The subscription in those days cost $3.97 a year. It was right on the thing. It showed the, the little card that he filled out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I thought, this figures. You yeah. know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the guy <laughs> gives me a magazine subscription. Can you – I mean, it just figures. I mean, it just – why <laughs> – give me a break. So – The magazine came. It was like a Reader's Digest format, only it wasn't as thick or it wasn't as nice. And W. Clement Stone, who was one of the richest men in America at that time, was the editor-in-chief. Oh, I'm sorry. He was the publisher of the magazine. And he owned the Combined Insurance Company of America. He was worth $400 million back in those days, before they they ever talked about billionaires. And by today's standards, he would have been a billionaire if you figured today's dollars. But anyway, nonetheless, he would always write an editorial In the front of the magazine, uh, and his concept was PMA, positive mental attitude, and OPM, not opium, not the drug, OPM, other people's money. That was two of the things that W. Clement Stone would drill down on constantly, among other things. But mainly the positive mental attitude, PMA, about having a positive mental attitude about what you were trying to accomplish in your life. And then the magazine was just full, ripe I don't know if the w- word word would be rife, maybe, uh, of men and women that had success stories galore, and they, and they had failures before their successes, and they'd tell, uh, they'd feature. Not every month they couldn't feature several; they'd feature one, and they'd have these people in there that they would tell their story, along with other little little articles about uh, humorous things or or sales techniques or um uh, things about business. They were. Uh, And every month that would come by, I would read that magazine, and I I so looked forward to it, and I started to grow. I started to think differently. And um, I always had that, that desire. Bobby Knight said, the coach from Indiana said this one time, he said, all men have the desire to win, and women, all men and women have the desire to win, but few have the will to prepare. And... I was preparing for success and didn't know it because it was I was like a sponge. It just made so much sense to me. Every time I would read these pages, the stuff would just sink into my mind, my subconscious mind, and I would think about it over and over again and think how much how, how much it how much sense it made and how positive it was, and how nothing could be wrong with this ideology. It, it's perfect. And I'd never even and again, it gets back to my seeds of greatness that my father had instilled in me and my mother, too. But in terms of wanting to do something with sales and in and, and, and a business um, that came more from my father, the, the risk side of me, the entrepreneur side of me, not the work ethic side, which came from my mom's side. Not that my dad didn't work hard, but I, I never witnessed my father working because he was so sick. But I started to read these magazines every month, and they really, really were motivating to me. And then along with that would come tapes. They'd make tape offers that you could get uh, Dennis Waitley. Um, uh, Bob Harrington uh, would, would, did some tapes, and uh, he was the chaplain of Bourbon Street. And um, W. Clement Stone had tapes. Uh, Og Mandino, I, I forgot to mention Og Mandino because he was the managing editor um Clement Stone was the publisher, but he would hired Og Mandino to uh, be his editor and in chief. And Og would always have an interesting editorial. I said earlier I was wrong. I said uh, Clement Stone did the editorial. It wasn't him. It was Og Mandino. And Og Mandino was a national treasure. He's dead now, but he he wrote uh, some great books, uh, a number of great books, great orator, great speaker, great motivator, and uh, just a great person, great American. And he wrote the greatest salesman ever the world, greatest salesman in the world. And uh, there's two other books he wrote. The Ten this, Scrolls, the Ten Scrolls, right? And the, there's another one. I can't remember what the third one. But I have a trilogy of his books in. Uh, they're leather bound and signed by Og Mandino. They're numbered and signed by Og. And um, so I started to see that there was a world out there that I wasn't even aware of. It was just it was it was out there, and I I thought, wow. I want in <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I, want in. I uh I just started to started to read and started to apply myself and apply the the principles of success and oh i i forgot to mention um Napoleon Hill thinking grow rich and i I took a job with the Alexander Hamilton life insurance company and um even though I had my my business going, I was still in college and uh I thought I could sell life insurance and again, I felt like Lou Holtz, you know that summer I sold my car and my t v and I didn't sell many policies. But but the one thing that really did wonders for my life was I had to pay $100 for my sales seminar. And the sales seminar was run by two uh, really qualified men, uh, founders of the company, actually, Chuck Bruce and Bob Safford. And they gave you a little sales kit. It was a, just a very cheap uh, briefcase. It wasn't leather. It was fake leather. And all your sales information, your, your learning, uh, your, your study materials. But in that briefcase was two books, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and The Go-Getter by Peter B. Kine, K-Y-N-E or K-Y-N-E. I can't remember exactly. The, the, the Go-Getter was a, a hardbound book, and it was only probably, oh, maybe 50 pages, if that. Very thin book. Hardbound, hardcover, gray. It was gray with either black or red lettering on it. Unfortunately, I've lost my original copy to that book of uh, the Go Getter. It's a very good. I highly recommend it. And then the other book I do have in its original copy. It's tattered. It's yellowed. It's underlined. It's 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 worn out. Of uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And those things started to started me on my journey. And I'm still on my journey. And I I remember a friend of mine, who sold uh, Blue Cross insurance, he had a yacht down in the Detroit River. I wasn't there, but he told me the story. And a guy was on his boat, and he said, uh, Dave, he said, uh, what is a nice boat you got here? He said, who's the most important client you've ever had on this boat? And Dave said, I've never met him yet. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And it's the same thing with me and my family. We're still growing and going. And like Ray Kroc said, if you're green and growing, you're still alive. But if you're ripe, you start to rot. Mm -hmm. So I want to continue doing that.
1: That's great. Thanks for sharing that. We're excited about next week. So we'll see you all next week.
0: Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.